Hello, welcome to this episode of the Power Podcast. Earlier this year, we had some conversations with advocates who work in various roles for power. The idea behind these chats was to talk to some of our staff about what got them into advocacy, why it's so important, and to get to know some of the people who work for power. 26th to the 30th of October 2020 is Advocacy Awareness Week. And so we decided that this would be a good time to release these podcasts so that you, the listener, can find out a bit more about what we do. In this episode, we speak to Emma, who works as a community manager for Power in Nottingham. The conversation that we had was recorded in July, and at the time, Emma had been shielding for a few months since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. Emma talked about her experiences of shielding as a clinically vulnerable person, about her passion for football and the challenges that women face getting into the game, and about the power of advocacy to change people's lives. We hope you enjoy the podcast. So, first question then, how are you finding remote working during COVID? A hard adjustment at the beginning, I think, and that goes you know, the same for everybody, I suppose. But I think as time's gone on, definitely become more adjusted to it. Um, I think in some cases it's worked really, really well. Um, some people have really kind of uh, thrived off the non-contact um, of advocates going in. And that's not not to say that it's negative when advocates do go in, but some people obviously find it quite anxiety-provoking or quite intense, somebody asking them those questions. Um, and to have the time to do it whenever they feel they want to do it, you know, via phone call or Skype or Teams, I think has been I think it's been really really positive majority. Yeah. Say, so yeah. Yeah. No, I, I'd agree with you. I think there are there are sometimes we've got we have clients that um, for whatever reason they don't understand that we are independent and that we're different to other professionals coming in. I mean, we just come in with a badge, and if they they haven't got that understanding of why we're there, then yeah, it can it can okay. be very anxiety inducing, can't it? Because I think we just, when we do face-to-face visits at times, we, you know, we book that visit in with the staff and we turn up on that day and that's the first that sometimes that client knows about that visit, even though I always make sure that they do try and tell the client, you know, there's that thing of not remembering. Whereas if on the day of, you know, when, you know, when are you free today for the advocate to speak to you, they're in control of that situation rather than us being in control of it, if that makes any sense. I hope that does make sense. But yeah, there's no, it less does. Pressure, there's less pressure on the, on the client because they can say, actually, I don't want to speak today, can we speak tomorrow? Whereas when we're going physically, we've travelled there, we have to then go back another day, which we would do. But I think in terms of it being more time efficient, I think remote work has actually been really beneficial as well. So, yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, the other, the other issue as well that some of my clients, uh, IMHA clients, used to find quite anxiety-inducing was... The lanyard, the like the one you're wearing, you know, our old school logo, is the same yeah. red that medical students wear in Nottinghamshire. Yeah. Yeah. So quite often I was asked if I was a junior doctor or something like that. And then potentially people that are unwell in hospital, they might not be, you know, particularly friendly with the particular members of staff. You know, so so that would sometimes provide a barrier to sort of starting that relationship up with a with a client. Yeah, definitely, definitely, yeah. Yeah, I don't, don't disagree at all. I think they have this assumption sometimes that certain professionals are there to tell them what they have to do or tell them what's going to happen, whereas, you know, obviously our job is to do the opposite, really. It's about what do you want to do? What do you want? And if 
a lat- colour of a lanyard instantly can break down that relationship, which is crazy, really, when you think about it. Yeah. One piece of, one accessory can change how a visit pans out, really. Yeah, no, I completely so, agree. Um, so that kind of leads me on to my next question, really, Emma. We, we've kind of talked a little bit before before we, we've recorded the podcast today, but you, you were telling me that you're at, um, you're, be, you're classed at the moment during the COVID-19 pandemic as being extremely yeah. clinically vulnerable. So, yeah. I mean, that's a, a, a that's a pretty big, big thing at the moment, isn't it? And I imagine that in, you know, sort of induces a certain level of anxiety in itself. So I, I just wondered whether you'd be able to tell me a little bit more about that and, and how that's affected you over the yeah, past few months. Sure. I think when COVID first came about, I think like everybody, um, it was extremely anxiety, you know, provoking for everybody. Um, and I was very naive, maybe, in thinking that I wouldn't be classed as being in the clinically vulnerable kind of category. So for me, it wasn't really a consideration that that was going to be a thing, even though I wasn't going out anyway, because I didn't want to get ill. Because, you know, yeah. it, it took off so quickly. It went from almost zero to nothing in a few days. Um, and then my letter came through four weeks late. So I should have got it in March, even though I carried on going to the supermarket. Um, I didn't get it through until it must have been this the first week of April. That's um, awful. That's so yeah. so bad, isn't it? So yeah. it wasn't great because obviously I've been out to a point where I've been to the hospital, I've been out shopping. I just think, gosh, like worst case scenario there would have been that I could have caught something yeah. being the dramatic person I am. Um, but yeah, I think when I got it, I was very frustrated. I was quite annoyed and I don't know why. Because I didn't think I needed a letter to tell me how unwell I could be or am. But I think as time's gone on, I've been quite grateful actually. It's almost been like a a boundary or a barrier that's been set up for me to safeguard me. And I suppose it's the same in the way in the way we protect people that we support at the moment. Um, so it's kind of safeguard measure, isn't it? I suppose. Yeah. So I get. I guess because you've got that letter telling you that you're mm-hmm. vulnerable. It, it takes some of those choices out of your hands because you you then have to be more careful. Definitely. I think actually, in a sense, it also took some of the anxieties out of my hands because I wasn't really able to put myself in positions to go out to get or catch anything. So I literally haven't been out of the house properly. I mean, I've started going out now because obviously July, the, the, the rules started to relax a little bit for me. Um, but it was hard at the beginning to see like, my friends meeting up with their with their friends in groups of six out in the you know and I wouldn't be able to go and do that or if I did I'd put myself at a real high risk and it wouldn't be worth it and um, so yeah it's really crazy times actually I think maybe it's it's made me realize how much I need to maybe look at myself and look at keeping myself safe in the future um so I think I'm just a bit blasé about it all to be honest <laughs> yeah sure. so maybe this is the reality check that I needed um but it's but it's been okay I've used uh this lockdown period to benefit me I'm healthier than I've ever been I'm fitter than I've ever been um whereas some people have gone the opposite way because they've got you know it's how you utilize your time and I didn't want to waste three months of being in my house because if I didn't do anything I literally would be a couch potato so I've had to really push myself to be healthy and positive because if not I think well god knows what I'd look like Tom <laughs> no, I, I was going to say when you when you mentioned the the couch potato thing, I I feel that I fall into that category definitely. Mm. But um, mm. it's interesting you should say it because I've got a mate who he happens to be living in Barcelona at the minute actually, but he he's mm. um, classed as as uh, clinically vulnerable. 
Um, and it's the same situation because, like yourself, he's he's proper into his fitness and is you know like he would he'd normally be out going for a run, going to the gym, playing football and things like that. Um, and he um, f- for quite a long time since he, he had um, Hodgkin's lymphoma a few years ago. And ever since he he got the all clear, he's been extremely anxious about his health. And it's something that, as a friendship group, we've we've kind of helped him through it in the way that perhaps um, lads together might do. Do you know what I mean? We we kind of a little bit sort of um, sort of taking the Mickey, but it's it's in a very supportive way, if if that makes sense. Um, But we also we always felt up until recently that he was possibly more anxious than he needed to be given that he'd been given a clean bill of health and it was only when he actually received this letter that you know I I think it made us realize that perhaps we'd been a little bit blasé about it you know because because he wasn't obviously unwell at that point you know his his hair had grown back and he was kind of um, moving forward moving on with his life I, I think it can make people a little bit complacent can't it I think I, I think I completely agree with what you just said actually, and I think maybe the letter for me was that um, like the ability that I needed to show me the seriousness of my condition, even though it's something that I've had for the past ten years and it's progressively got worse. And even though I acknowledge that, I don't fully accept it, and I just carry on. I'm not. I don't look unwell. I deal with it in my own ways. People don't see it either. Um, so in my head, sometimes I don't see it because when it's not you know, a present thing on that particular day. I'm like, I'm fine, I'm the same as anybody else. So when I got the letter through, I was like, oh gosh, okay, like maybe I need to take this a little bit more seriously. Not that I go off doing things that are detrimental to my health, but it was a massive reality check, massive sure. reality check for me. This 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 whole kind of pandemic has really opened my eyes to maybe how careful I need to be in the future and actually almost how other people need to be in terms of supporting people that are more prone to catching things or getting unwell because you just don't see it you know it's only now that we've ever had to question that it is it's interesting isn't it because i i've got um i had a client up until recently who with obsessive compulsive disorder and he said what he finds strange is that he does this all the time you know his his um you know his particular obsessions around around hygiene and things like that and he said it's almost like the whole world has become like him all of a sudden yeah because this yeah. is the, this is the level of attention to detail that he takes anyway you know he would um he would spray the handle of a, of a shopping basket or trolley before he went to the supermarket and he would you know he would clean certain rooms in his house multiple times and and he says he finds he finds it strangely comforting almost to see other people out and about with masks because it reassures him yeah. that they're taking the same precautions, precautions. that he's used yeah. to because perception of people's actions change. The next question then is is around sort of advocacy and, and what got you into it. Now I, I know from conversations we've had that you've worked in health and social care before you joined yeah. Power. What was it that you used to do, and have you always kind of had a a preference for going towards a job, you know, working with people? So I used to work in retail as my. After I went to uni and I came out of uni, I just got the first job that I could find. And I just worked with retail for ages. So very different type of working with people. But I worked with people every single day, both challenging and easy. And then I went to work in a brain injury unit in Nottingham, which 
was kind of in line with what I did at university. So for me, it's what I wanted to do. It's what I've always wanted to go into is supporting people and caring for people. So I worked in the brain injury um, unit for probably about a year and a half. And then power started coming into that unit and providing advocacy to the people that I work with every single day. And I'd never heard of power before. And then there were posters up and I started to talk to one of the ladies who actually I now know really well, now at power. Um, and I kind of asked them, what do you do? You know, what's your role? How can you support people? And then she told me, if there's a job going out on this day, you should really go for it. And that's the rest of the history, I suppose. I went for the job and then I started working for Power in 2017. So, yeah, I think work, I wanted to work for Power because I could see what Power did for the clients that I personally worked for. I mean, I tried to advocate for the people that I worked with at the brain injury unit. But ultimately, there's probably an aspect of bias to that role because I worked in that environment. So, and the importance of having an outside person to support in some of those really, really tough meetings that I had to sit through when I worked there around things like pegs and serious medical treatment, you know, it was invaluable to have that second voice, you know, the, somebody to support you through those processes. So, yeah, and then I've, I've worked with Power since. So it's been been great, really. I kind of worked with Power, like, firsthand almost before I started working with Power, which is slightly unusual, I think, actually. I don't know if there's many other people in Power that have had that. No, I mean, I certainly haven't. You know, until I applied for a job with Power, I'd, I'd never heard of, heard of power or or what they do really and that's I think that speaks volumes for advocacy generally you know it's 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 an unsung profession isn't it um did you did you not have aspirations to be kind of a professional footballer at one stage (laughs) yeah I wanted to play for like Arsenal ladies and that play for England when I was like 15 16 I just used to play football constantly um and I played it constantly when I was at uni. I, it's literally all I did. You know, I mean, my best friends from uni, all of us, the best friends I made from uni are all football. And all we did was, you know, our degree came second in the majority of the time because we just constantly trained. And we used to play for another team as well outside of university alongside the team that we played for at uni. And then I used to play for another team back at home as well. So it was just like my life at one point and then obviously I had my injury when I was in my first year of uni which kind of crushed everything um so that's why I don't really play anymore (laughs) my body's too old apparently to play 90 minutes which is quite sad at 27 yeah (laughs) I know I know it's the life my it's just the way my life runs so you know that was a bit annoying a bit frustrating at the time um it's a shame. Oh. It is a great shame, but I, I think there are so many. I, I mean, you, it, it's such a lottery almost to, to be able to become, you know, a professional footballer, and 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 also given the fact that there's there's not nearly as much money in the women's game as, as the I'm men's game, you know. No, so you, not at all. I, I think women probably have to make those decisions to choose between a, a non-footballing career and a football career, probably at much earlier age than men would have to. Yeah, it's tough. Women have to have a job, a full-time job, or a decent part-time job, and football to live off. I mean, the reality of me ever being professional was slim, but it was something which football was my life. So that was just something that I, you know, I used to watch it all the time. I mean, I still watch it every single day. And at the moment, it's literally every single day because there's nothing else on TV. Yeah. But you know, it is, and men can have it as a career option from the get-go. Women still, I don't get you wrong, there's been massive improvements over the past five years in the WSL and the, and the pay, but it's just nowhere near enough. I mean, the top footballer is, the woman is only still getting about 60 grand. I'm not saying that's not a good amount of money, because of course it is, but you've got footballers earning 
120 grand in one week in the men's game. And I understand that there's more, it's more commercialised, there's more money for that. But, you know, women, oh yeah, I want to play football, but what other job am I going to have as well to sustain me? At the same time, does that make sense? You know, you've got people being builders or being PE teachers or coaches so that they can get money to still play football yeah. at a professional, professional level. Yeah, no, I, it, it makes complete sense. And like I say, the the probability of, of suffering a, a career-threatening injury is high anyway. Um, and, and the you know the the added the added disadvantage of, of um, being in the women's game, I think, and, and, and trying to break through, it's really unfair when you look at it that way, isn't it? Massively, massively, yeah. Just I don't have time for it now, to be honest, either. Mind you, to, to be fair, at least at least nobody's um, playing football at the moment. You know, it's, it's yeah, well true. other than professionals. Yeah. You well, know. yeah, and some of the men's like boys, the men's training's going back, but I just don't understand why women's always the, the last sports to go back. It just doesn't make any sense to me. But that's not a discussion I'm going to get into. No, no, I think no, <laughs> I think it's day. I think it's a fair. What you know, there's, there's there's certainly a level of sexism there, isn't there? So no, I completely. In the WSL got shut down pretty much straight away. The season was wiped instantly. Almost. Yeah. Yeah. The men's game we'll wait and see whether we can play those games but let's just wipe all the women's games straight away and I understand it's probably due to kind of the logistics and the funding so I know that it, it requires a lot of kind of organisation in terms of making sure it's safe and things like that but it just seems like women's women's activities or women's sports was the first thing to be swiped if it can be that's maybe that's the way I view it because I'm a woman maybe that is how I see it but people just have to fight harder yeah um, you know, it doesn't make a difference how good people are. I wouldn't say I was I was amazing, but my aspiration was to play for somebody kind of semi-pro. That would probably be my aim, would have been my aim. But it just feels like women have to just bargain and fight harder for that equality, I suppose, within that sector, or whatever sector it is. I mean, don't get me wrong, within advocacy and social care, I think there's a lot, it's, there's a lot of equality. There's certain aspects within kind of business, things like that, where women just have to fight so much harder to get those roles or get promotions or, you know, and it is improving, but they've still got a long way to go. Um, but I think until people, people just need to keep standing up to it, don't they, and, and shouting it on the rooftops as such before change happens. So it's the same with most movements that are happening. If you don't get behind it and don't support it constantly, there isn't going to be enough change. There isn't going to be, there isn't going to be equality. So that's actually that's a really good segue back into my next question, Emma. So thanks very much for that. So what, <laughs> I try. What, so what motivates you to be an advocate? What what motivates you to keep getting the best outcomes for your clients? I think it's just wanting people wanting to give people that opportunity to have their opinion fed into their own processes. It's just absolutely mad to me that decisions are made about people without involving those people. I think from working in care, I saw so many decisions being made, oh, well, they wouldn't want that, or that's what's in their best interest, but there's not one conversation that's had with that person to just, just for five minutes to say, what do you want? You know, it's just, it's just crazy to me, and I'm, I'm super, super passionate about advocacy. I'm just super passionate about supporting people as a general. Um, it's something I do in my day-to-day life, whether it's at work or out of work. So I think it's giving people that opportunity to speak up for themselves, have the tools to do that. I just people that are happy to make decisions on someone else's behalf without even trying to get them involved in that decision. I don't know how. 
I don't know how they can live with themselves. I mean, they made decisions about somebody that they might not have wanted and they have no rights, apparently, or they have no means to fight that back. And I think that's what, what makes advocacy so important is that we're able to support them to fight decisions that have gone the opposite way than what they would have gone, or we fight and support them to be involved in those processes to begin with. And it empowers people because then those clients and those individuals know going forward that actually I've got a right to be involved in every single decision you're making about me. If you're not given the option to know that's your right, do you know what I mean? They're not going to be able to challenge it. They're not going to be able to know any different. I, mean, I think the difficulty of advocacy, you don't normally get involved when it's a nice situation. I mean, obviously we can get involved in reviews and they're quite, you know, they're not negative, not necessarily negative. But the majority of times that advocacy is provided is when there's big decisions being made that could change somebody's life. doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be positive. So we have to ensure that the person that we're supporting doesn't see it as a negative thing and that they see it as a positive and that actually they can have all their views heard within this process to have the outcome that they want. If they're feeling like, well, professionals are going to make this decision, you know, my social worker or whoever, it's going to make me move here or going to make this, it's going to change my support or it's going to cut my hours. You know, it's making people feel involved in that process so they're not out of the loop. It becomes disjointed, doesn't it? I mean, social social care is supposed to be their support. It's supposed to be there to provide support for people who need it. And sometimes social care is viewed in quite a negative light. It cuts, cuts, cuts all the time. Whereas I think advocacy, if we work alongside social services, which we do, I think they can build really positive relationships with both us and social services from, in terms of the individual. That makes any sense. But I've around a little bit there. No, no, I think um, that's a really good, a really good answer. I, I, it's really inspiring actually listening to you talk about what motivates you to do the job. Something that I've found through recording this series and speaking to some of the other advocates, the uh-huh. the common threads that run through it are that we're all really passionate about social justice and you know and and, you know making sure that vulnerable people are treated equally and we might have different stories different interests but but it all comes down to that central drive and 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 personally speaking I because I get so down so annoyed by what I see on the news and all of the negativity you know um, around things that are happening in the world to be able to make that sort of tiny difference to you know to an individual's life is is so rewarding yeah massively i completely agree you shouldn't be an advocate if you don't care about people for start and you might willing to fight for stuff i mean you can sometimes be in some really challenging situations where you kind of have to, it's not conflict but you have to have some really difficult discussions with social workers sometimes or just social services in general when you know that decisions have been made that aren't right they're not legally right and it's about having that drive to be able to challenge those decisions that isn't, that isn't right Thanks very much to Emma for appearing on the podcast. If you'd like to know more about Power, you can visit our website at www.power.net. That's www.pohwer.net. Or you could call us on 0300 020 0093. Thanks for listening.